I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey, everyone. Jeremy Scheinwald here with another episode of Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. I am a longtime volunteer, mentor, and avid podcaster for Venture for America. It's a program that I, as an entrepreneur, really respect and, and indeed wish was around when I was uh, a recent college graduate. It's a program where uh, it's a fellowship program where enterprising recent college graduates launch their careers as entrepreneurs and help revitalize America's cities. After five weeks of training, VFA fellows spend two years in the trenches of a startup in an emerging U.S. city where they learn how to contribute to a high-growth business. Afterwards, VFA provides the mentorship, network, and resources fellows need to become entrepreneurs. To learn more about Venture for America and to support our work or even to apply for the fellowship, you can visit our website, VentureForAmerica.org. And I hope you are or are becoming a loyal listener to our podcast. Please take a moment to subscribe to and like our show on iTunes. And you can follow me on Twitter at Jeremy Scheinwald. We love listeners. Tell someone about our show. And if you're interested in my professional background as an entrepreneur, you can check out MissionDrivenGroup.com. Today we have Philip Krim, founder of Casper, on the show. Philip started his entrepreneurial career in a University of Texas dorm room, finding a way to drop ship mattresses across the country. Through the Merrick Group, Philip led what became a family business, only with him at the helm employing much of his family, uh, to become a member of the Inc. 500, that is, one of the fastest-growing 500 companies in the country. The company approached $10 million in sales just as he was graduating from college, and he remained at the helm of the firm that he founded for seven years before starting Vocalize Mobile, which tried to enhance the visibility of small businesses. Then... After two years, he returned to the mattress business with a vengeance, founding Casper, which has raised almost $70 million in its effort to compete with well-established incumbents and change the mattress buying experience. Some would say disrupt the mattress, uh, the mattress incumbents, that is. Transparent pricing and direct-to-consumer is what Philip's model is all about. Philip has been an entrepreneur for more than a decade, and he has some great stories to tell. But before we get to Philip's episode, um, I want to ask you, do you need a website? Why not do it yourself with Wix.com? No matter what business you're in, Wix.com has something for you. Used by more than 77 million people worldwide, Wix.com makes it easy to get your website live today. You need to get the word out about your business. It all starts with a stunning website. With hundreds of designer-made, customizable templates to choose from, there is absolutely no coding needed. You don't need to be a programmer or designer to create something beautiful. You can do it yourself with Wix.com. Wix.com empowers business owners to create their own professional websites every day. When you're running your own business, you're bound to be busy. And that means kind of too busy. Too busy worrying about your budget. Too busy scheduling appointments. Too busy building a website for your business. And because you're too busy, it has to be easy. And that's where Wix.com comes in. With Wix.com, it's easy and free. Go to Wix.com to create your own website today. The result is stunning. Here is our interview with Philip Krim. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. 
Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Philip, thanks so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. So, Philip, you have been an entrepreneur seemingly forever. Like, is this literally all you know professionally? Have you ever had the proverbial real job? And I would even include in that, like, the high school retail job or the, <laughs> the waiting job or anything like that? I have had a, a few stints at the traditional retail job in high school, absolutely. And then uh, a few consulting stints here and there where I was helping other people, uh, which felt a little too traditional for my liking. So I, uh, I definitely kind of like the entrepreneurial path and, and carting my own uh, way forward. So you're, you're part of a legacy of, of University Tex, of Texas dorm room entrepreneurs. Uh, maybe maybe one day you'll be the most famous one, but I think for now you're maybe Michael Dell might have a have a, have a little bit on you for now. Yeah, uh, he set the bar pretty high, so I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> your father said of your entrepreneur your initial entrepreneurial dabblings here. I did some deep research on you. Uh, quote: He was looking for some spending money. He was a UT business student and very interested in the internet, so he started a company that evolved into selling beds on the internet. I love the way he kind of just said like, "Yeah, he wanted some spending money, so he started a business selling beds across the country. Problem solved." Tell us about how the Merrick Group began. Like, what was uh, what was the the intuition that led to selling beds across the country? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I was a sophomore at the University of Texas in Austin and was trying to avoid getting a traditional summer job yet again. Uh, and so, at the time, I was looking at um, companies that would drop ship goods for you. And so, basically, that meant if you took the order, uh, they would do all of the the handling of physical goods. And so I found a few different uh, manufacturers of products. Some were in mattresses, but uh, a variety of different products. I would then build a website with some of the products from their product catalog, uh, and I would try to market it online and was able to generate sales for them, and they would handle the fulfillment. And uh, that ended up becoming the Mero Group, but it, it really was kind of an accidental discovery of, of just trying to earn some extra money here and there. So where, where, where does this instinct towards job avoidance come from? Like, where, where <laughs> you, Did you just always know you were going to be an entrepreneur from the time you were young? Uh, my father was always an entrepreneurial, so I was exposed to it at an early age for sure. And uh, it definitely wasn't always the, the idea. So I went into college studying finance and thinking I was going to go into a traditional you know, investment banker route or something like that. Um, but was always eager to, to see uh, about how you can do something on your own because uh, you, you definitely see the reward of that and there's no one telling you what to do. And um, you know if, if things work out, uh, you, you get to continue to, to cart your own um, course. Right. The, the, the Merit Group is, is founded in 2002, and by 2006, when you graduate, you're running a business that's 55th on Inc.'s list of the 500 fastest-growing companies in, in America. In 2007, you have $9.5 million in, in sales of betting and blinds. Um, this isn't you know, a photo-sharing site. You know, you're, you're shipping specialty mattresses across the country, which I'm assuming requires you know, payroll and customers to please and returns and stuff like that. I mean, what's going through your mind as you're a, a college student running a $9.5 million business? <laughs> it's, uh, it's always funny. When you look back, you're like, I, I have no idea how I pulled something like that off. But at the time, it was really just uh, taking it one day, to, one day at a time and, you know, grew it to about 40 employees and about $10 million in sales, but uh, never had like a grand vision for what the business would become. It was really uh, just a way to see if I could find customers to buy things from things that I put together online. And uh, it was just still the early days of the internet, although I still say that today. I, I think we're still in early days, but back in 2002, 2003, and so on, uh, it, it still felt like the Wild West. And, 
you know, anyone could go out there and kind of hang their shingle. And, and so for me, it was just building these websites that I, I figured out how to build through some very basic CMS tools. And uh, fortunately, some people started buying from there. And, and I just figured out how to reinvest that and to do more online marketing. And that's really how I learned uh, e-commerce and, and digital marketing. Did you have any time for for college at all? Like, did you do you feel like you missed out on the college experience? Uh, I don't. I uh, I was still able to graduate, although it took me five years. Um, so I, I was able to to still balance both, and and I actually switched from my original studies of finance to marketing because I thought that was more applicable to what I was learning uh, through the e-commerce business. And it was, uh, you know, I was actually able to take a lot of learnings from my day-to-day operations and apply it to school and. You know, fortunately, it, it school didn't take up all that much time, and I was able to balance both. And, and I think you just hinted at this, like you, I, I'm, I'm maybe I'm in, in, in intuiting this uh, somewhat, but it seems like you, you, you bootstrapped the business, um, the Merrick Group. Was, was, did you seek any outside capital? At all? I did. Uh, I, I bootstrapped the business, and we did not raise any outside capital. Um, at the time, I didn't know exactly what that meant, but looking back, you know, people weren't investing in kind of consumer businesses. This was right after the the crash, and so this was still 02, 03, 04. Um, and, and so really it was just uh, kind of how do I take sales today and invest it to get sales tomorrow? And it was that really kind of short-term focus that, that forces you to be really scrappy and efficient. And, uh, you know, that's how we were able to grow the business and, and keep it lean and small and, and not have to rely on outside capital. And you turned the family, you turned the Merrick Group into, into a family business, from what I could tell. You know, only the generations were a little inverted. You you had your mom and dad and sister on the team, um, but you were you were the captain of the ship. Uh, do I have that correct? First of all, yeah, definitely. And and so that was um, in part because as uh, the company started to grow, it started taking more and more time. And uh, had the phone call with my parents saying, you know, I think I should drop out and, and work on this business, and they said, absolutely not, complete non-starter. Uh, you will get your degree, uh, but we'll help you with things. And so, uh, you know, what started as a couple hours here and there uh, ended up being kind of full-time jobs for the family and for uh, over 30 other people. Was there ever a moment where, you know, you just had like the the interfamily squabble around around business? Uh, you're like, look, I, I got to pull rank on you, mom. Uh, you know, this is the way it's going to be. Uh, seemingly every day, especially <laughs> my sister ended up getting involved too. Uh, so there were some... Uh, well-known screaming matches in the office from time to time. But uh, it was always great. I mean, we always were able to separate out family and business, and, and uh, it, we made it work. I don't want to put you too much on the spot here, but what was one of the – can you give us an example of, of one of the things that, that was, I don't know, maybe a little more uh, of a little more strategic importance to the business that where you guys, you know, you wanted to zig and they wanted to zag or something like that? Uh, you know, I, I don't remember the substance of the fight, but I think a, an example that's indicative of just the dynamic was I, I think something went wrong with one of the websites one day. And so I, I lashed out and fired my sister. My sister would call my mom. My mom would call <laughs> me. So you can't fire your sister. And it was just that kind of roundabout that made for a very interesting uh, corporate dynamic, if would, you will. Would you ever do it again? Would you advise? Like, I mean, there are pros and cons of, of having family there. You know, would you advise someone who was thinking about bringing on family members to... What, what advice would you give to someone who was, who was thinking about, about doing that? Yeah, there's definitely pros and cons. Uh, there were parts where I enjoyed and there were parts that were very frustrating. Uh, I think I had my share of family business, so <laughs> uh, I, I'm not quick to go into it. Um, I have friends that do it and, and they love it. And uh, I certainly have friends that do it and hate it. So it just depends on the dynamic and, and how it's set up and if you think it's right for you. Uh, and I'll, I'll say, you know, the, that company had its ups and downs and good times and bads, just like every company does. And uh, it just adds a layer of, of kind of stress that um, 
you know, some people are set up to handle and others aren't. Yeah, I love my brother, but the two of us have trouble planning. Like, a, we're, we're trying to plan a dinner tomorrow for our family, and it's not working out very well. So I, I, I can see there be, you know, some some options. I, that said, I actually do trust him, you know, so thoroughly and ask for his advice all the time. But there's a difference between getting, I think, an advisor and working together every day. So I, I yeah. hear you. Yeah, every setup. I mean, every setup has its set of complexities and it, its pros and cons. Whether it's a, a group of fi- founders like I have now or family, it's. Um, they, uh, they're just different dynamics that you have to manage. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. So you've got this great growth company. You know, you're so up there on the way up there on the Inc. 500, 500 list. What what led to you? What led you to wrap things up um, at at Merrick? Um, so I had moved to New York uh, a number of years ago, and Merrick uh, started becoming just an increasingly tough business. Um, so as the big boys came into the online space within the categories that we were operating, they just made the dynamics uh, unsustainable. Um, and so the, the writing was on the wall for a number of years. You know, we we got through the downturn in oh eight oh nine. Uh, but it, it was just a, a tough business. Um, so I moved on from that and was working on a company called Vocalize Mobile uh, that helped local businesses generate new leads through mobile advertising. And the genesis there was I saw how effective mobile advertising was when it came to uh, originating online customers. Uh, and so it, it made sense that if you were looking on your phone, you would also be looking for local businesses. Uh, and, and it was a great product, and it, it generated great leads. Uh, the, the challenge I learned in that business, and I, I ran it for a number of years, but uh, the challenge that I ran into was just selling to local businesses is really tough, and, and uh, it, it, it's something that uh, I had trouble scaling, and, and it was a business that was really interesting, and it was very rewarding to work with local businesses because I know, being a small business owner, how how hard it is to you know grow the business, make payroll, things like that. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, went from Vocalized Mobile to what I'm doing now, which is Casper. Yeah, I'm curious about the vocalized mobile experience because there's one thing that I, that I noticed, which is you were at it for a couple of years, you know, trying to tackle the, tackle these small business problems, and and then you entered the entrepreneurs entrepreneurs roundtable. I'm stumbling on my own words here. Entrepreneurs roundtable accelerator. Um, uh, you know, what were you thinking in joining an accelerator like that late in the game at Vocalized Mobile? So uh, it, it really was kind of to evolve the business to be more of a technology product as opposed to just a service offering. Um, so with entering ERA and uh, working on Vocalized Mobile, I brought on uh, a co-founder and CTO, and we were going to build a technology platform that businesses could use to do some of the work that we were doing manually. Um, so it was, a, it was a, you know, a bigger vision for the company and something that I thought required additional resources and additional um, perspective. Um, but at the end of the day, it was the same core challenge of kind of selling that uh, product offering to small businesses that, that was difficult to overcome. So when do, you, when do you know that it's time to throw in the towel? You know, like, at what point, like this is something that fascinates me because I, I have a, a friend of mine who's a serial entrepreneur and he talked about how he had to counsel someone that he was investing in to wind things down. He said, this guy could probably keep going, get that next bridge round, that next bridge round to, and this guy, you know, had, he, had been, he had a venture-backed business. Um, but it never occurred to me. I sort of feel like, hey, the, the business tells you it's time to be done, not you tell the business. What was, what was your experience in terms of the moment where I was like, okay, you know what? Vocalized Mobile isn't the place to invest my time or, or even the Merrick Group, and I've got to move on. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question, uh, and it's tough because it's not like you know someone taps you on the back and says you're done. Um, you know, a lot of times uh, you just have to be honest with yourself and and uh, always try to take a step back and see you know what the lay of the land is. What you know, there are times where of course you, you run out of cash. That means kind of day game over or. Right. Uh, you know, you can't make payroll and, and things like that where, you know, it's, it's really challenging. Um, but other times it's, you know, potentially getting excited by another idea um, or it, it's just seeing that, you know, you need to start exploring your options because this doesn't look like it's, it's going to be tenable over the long term. Uh, and so I always try to have that perspective of just uh, making sure that you're not so focused on making something work that you let either something else pass you by or that, you um, you're, you're not honest with yourself about the what the real prospects are of something are. It sounds like you're maybe even a little dispassionate about it. Like, okay, he's got to look at this maybe a little analytically. Like, I, we talk also on the show a lot about how a lot of founders can't separate themselves and their businesses and, and really sort of so personally identify it to the point where it's detrimental. Do you feel like you had some of that? Or was it like, look, I'm, I'm making a cool, calculated, analytical decision that I've got to move on? Yeah, I don't think it's dispassionate as much as it is just uh, being honest with yourself and uh, in the business. And uh, I think you can be very passionate and throw yourself into a company, but um, t- to know, to be honest with yourself about where your limits are and what the external limits are, and you know whether that's a funding limitation or a, a macro event that's happening or you know, some kind of externality that you can't control. You just have to be honest and kind of add up all the different variables. And hopefully that lets you make an informed decision going forward. And so uh, I, you know, I I tried to not let emotions drive it. But of course, you know, the ups and downs of a business affect you emotionally uh, to a a really high degree. But you just kind of have to balance that and know that you have that emotional side and you balance that with a rational side as well. Right. It's a good lesson for me. I, I, I tend, to, tend to skew towards the emotional side almost always. Uh, well, and I'd say like one thing that's helpful to me is when I know which way I skew on a certain topic is to talk to someone I know would skew the other way and, and right. just have balanced perspectives. And, uh, you know, there, there are just times where you need some, someone with a fresh set of eyes to take a look at a situation and give you a read. Right. I'll give you a call next time. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so so it's interesting that you jump back into, into mattresses. Uh, you know, saying what you just said a moment ago, give me the con- context of, you know, there are a lot of big players who moved into online mattresses, and I guess that market was starting to get hyper-competitive and maybe squeezed a little bit, and yet you came back into it. What was the, what was the insight you had that allowed you to say, no, I, I want to I, I go back into this, but in, I'm assuming a, a pretty different way. Um, tell me about that, that, that insight. Yeah. Uh, it's a good point because I had sworn off the, the mattress industry and, and never could see myself getting back into it. Um, but I think first and foremost, I met uh, my four co-founders for Casper and uh, really was just excited to work with them on something. And we, you know, had gotten to know each other over the, the course of kind of 2013, met early in 2013. Uh, and then summer of 2013 is when uh, the idea of Casper kind of came up. And really it was, we were in the same office space and we saw how uh, important sleep was, yet people were kind of passing out in the middle of the day on beanbag chairs and no one was prioritizing sleep as, as a real tool to productivity and creativity. And that led to a kind of casual conversation about how buying a mattress was just a terrible experience, no matter where you're doing it. And uh, we asked ourselves, why wasn't there kind of a Warby Parker of the mattress industry? And to me, that was uh, a unique enough idea where it really piqued my curiosity. And the more we talked about it, the more excited I got, we got, um, because it, it didn't exist. There was no brand that was compelling and there was no 
uh, product that was unique and, and being sold direct to consumers. And so when we looked at the potential to take uh, what was a very disruptive business model in the eyeglass industry, or we saw it playing out in the razor blade industry, and thought about how we could take that business model and apply it to the uh, the mattress category, uh, it, it it compelled me to to uh, start to work on Casper. What are the steps between having this kind of stumbling upon this, like, oh, this is a good idea, and we should actually do this? Tell me about the, like both the time span and how much you know research and thought went into it. Um, maybe maybe versus emotion. Like I, I think I'd be the type of guy who would be like. Great idea. Let's start Monday. You know? <laughs> so, how how do you tell tell us about that process from idea to execution? Or yeah, it's I, I, idea to, to to at least green light to, to we're really going to seriously work on this full time. Yeah, it um, it definitely didn't feel like a, a linear path. I think um, you know, the, the idea took some thinking and, and some discussion to get excited about it. But even then, it was, you know, is this the right path? And again, I had my predisposition to not go back into the mattress category, but. Uh, the more we talked about it, the more spent time we spent together saying, you know, between the five of us, we really have kind of the right team to go after this, uh, then the, the more excited we got. And then when we started talking about the idea to people that we knew and trusted and, and they got excited, you know, we, we fed off of that. And then, um, you know, towards the, I guess, end of the summer, beginning of the fall of 2013, it's um, when we got real serious about it and we started working on the brand and the product and and. Uh, just developing a real thesis about what the business could be, and that's when we said, Let, let's just do that full-time. So tell me how the founding group came together, and five is a lot of founders like to start a company. Did you guys have very clear responsibilities? We were just kind of like all hands on deck, let's just make this thing move. Uh, yeah, five five is a lot, but it's worked great for us. It's been an incredible dynamic, and um, and we're very lucky. Uh, it's been clear roles and responsibilities since day one, and and uh between the five of us we had the right backgrounds to go build this kind of business so um you know one of my co-founders is in charge of operations one's in charge of creative one's in charge of tech and one's in charge of physical product and everyone had backgrounds in those respective fields and um between the five of us we've just been able to move really quick and and build casper to be a, a business we're really proud of why did you get to be the ceo uh, i think i had the most uh, background and experience on that front um so it, it it was just a natural fit. Right. Fair, fair. So you we talked about you bootstrapped the first time around and this and this time around you raised uh you know um, one point close to two million dollars pretty early on. Was the, did you give any thoughts to trying to bootstrap this time around? We did, um but I guess I had uh first hand experience about how hard bootstrapping is and you know, raising money has its own set of challenges and, and uh, is a different kind of complexity. Um, but to me, we had a really big vision for what we wanted to build with Casper. We want to kind of change the way the world thinks about sleep products and um, to do a, to, to accomplish a big vision and to build a big company, uh, especially to do one over long term. We knew that raising outside capital would help us let us withstand the ups and downs of the business and ups and downs of the markets and really let us take a very long-term view to building a brand that that, uh, would deliver exceptional products and an exceptional experience for decades to come. That's funny. I'm looking at my questions here, and so many of them are about... You know, strategic choices you made and 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 personal choices that and experiences. I, I didn't actually write anything down about the mattress itself. I, you know, <laughs> how did you determine like what the right 
mattress was, and how did you determine that you could manufacture it to the highest quality that you expected of it? Yeah, well, so the, the mattress is the best mattress on the market. Obviously, I'm a little biased with that, but we have a, a real innovation with the construction of the mattress. So we combine latex foam and memory foam in a way that's never been combined before, so we have a patent pending on that. Um, but really, we just set out to build a construction of mattress that would be perfect for almost any kind of sleeper. And when we started testing combining latex and memory foam, you had the kind of support factor that you want from latex foam, and you have the comfort and contourability from memory foam, and they balance each other out perfectly. And so the result is a mattress that uh, fortunately everyone loves and, and people continue to rave about. And so uh, this is a testament to the design philosophy that my partner Jeff brought to the table, and it, it's been awesome to see uh, how, how big of an impact the product has had on people's lives. And are you? Do you have multiple suppliers all over the country? Like, like it's a it's a heavy thing to ship, right? So how do you? And I don't want you to have to, have to reveal any trade secrets here. <laughs> but how does it work? Uh, we do have multiple suppliers throughout the country. Um, but the part of the innovative part of what we've done is we are able to pack the mattress into a box that's about the size of a mini fridge, mini fridge, and we could ship that all over the country. And so that allows us to affordably deliver the mattress anywhere in the U.S. and Canada. And it, uh, it, it's been awesome to see people unpack the mattress, see it come to life within a matter of seconds. And we now have hundreds or thousands of videos on YouTube of people unpacking the mattress. And it, it's just been awesome to I see. I saw some of those. It looks, it looks like a fun thing to it <laughs> experience. <is. laughs> um, so you attributed the busting out of the blocks pretty early. Casper was reported to have uh, $20 million of sales uh, in, in its first 10 months. Um, and it was, I think you attributed it to, to ver- just having a very loyal clientele. Uh, you know, everyone dreams of, of getting their customers to become evangelists. How did you do it? I think the experience was so differentiated with Casper from what anyone had ever seen or expected within uh, the mattress category that it just uh, begged for people to share it naturally. And so we got really lucky with that fact. People shared the unboxing videos. They shared the mattress coming to life. They shared either them jumping on the mattress or a pet jumping on the mattress. And it was awesome. I mean, none of us anticipated the virality of the product or the experience, but uh, because it was so different than anything anyone had expected, uh, it was awesome. And, and people shared it. And, and uh, we have you know great testimonials and, and people posting about it. So we've been really lucky on that front. And uh, we always continue to kind of up our game on uh, surprising and delighting customers and making the experience just truly uh, something that blows you away. We're talking with Philip Krim here. Let's uh, let's just take a, a step back. I mean, Philip's a guy who likes to keep things lean and mean, as you're hearing. Um, and and so am I. I'm a bootstrapper, and I like to save all startup costs. And 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 that's where Wix.com comes in. If if you need a website, do it yourself with Wix.com. It's not as hard as it used to be. Um, you know, no matter what business you're in, you're in, you can get your site live today. It's simple to customize, and there's no coding needed. It's used by, Wix is used by more than 77 million people worldwide. Wix is a great tool for entrepreneurs to establish their web presence, pre- presences without going over budget. You don't need to be a programmer or designer to create something beautiful. Wix.com makes it easy to get your website live with hundreds of customizable templates and easy drag-and-drop tools. Go to Wix.com and create your own stunning website. It's easy and it is free. How much better does it get for that? Uh, than that for a bootstrapping entrepreneur. You raised a Series A of $13.1 million only a few months after you opened the doors. What happened in 
uh, the six months um, that led to you having such intense capital needs, at, you know, $13 million in, in, in funds? So I think it goes back to uh, our goal with the business. Um, we knew that we wanted to build a revolutionary company that offered the best sleep products in the world uh, to people. And we wanted to in, invent those products, develop those products, improve on those products. And we wanted to do this for, for decades to come. And so when we saw the opportunity within the, the product categories that we were focused on, we, we had a lot of conviction that we could build a really big company. And fortunately, we met uh, Tony and, and NEA, and they saw our vision, and they saw how big of a company it could become, and, and they were excited to back us to do that. So it was really just uh, helping us take the next step to build a very long-term company that, that took the best products to market. And, and you mentioned before, like, kind of the big boys, so to speak, in the, in the business. Are you seeing any competitive reaction from them early on, or, or even now, I suppose? Sure. So um, we have seen companies talk about us and respond to us. But really, if you look at how our business operates and our business model compared to the incumbents in the space, it's just a fundamentally different business model that they can't quickly adapt to. Um, whereas a traditional mattress store uh, has the expense of rent and, and oftentimes very expensive retail locations and paying a commission salesperson, uh, there's just a lot of legacy costs that they can't shed easily. So uh, we feel really good about our positioning within the category, and we feel really good about us having a sustainable advantage versus the incumbents in the space. So going back to the fundraising, less less than a year later, after you raised your Series A, it was a pretty staggering $55 million Series B. Like, how did you determine that $55 million was the right number? Did you guys like literally sit down and be like, okay, look, this is what we need to execute on the next stage of the business, $55 million, and and you know, you had it all accounted for? How did you determine? Uh, sure. So, uh, you know, maybe not down to the, the penny, but we certainly <laughs> had uh, conviction that there were certain areas that we wanted to invest in and we wanted to do it in a meaningful way. Uh, some of those, <clears throat> excuse me, some of those are, are in the works and some of those, you know, will be coming down the road. Um, but it, it was, you know, there were specific areas where we saw the ability to really invest in this business to make it uh, a sustainable category-defining business that is a large and, and one-day profitable business. And um, we're really excited about the prospects of the business, and uh, this just goes to validate that we can think about things that are, again, longer-term and, and bigger visions. So you, you have a few celebrity investors. I noticed that on you know the, the, the beauty of Crunchbase. They, they list everyone. Um, and, you know, I'm Toby McGuire, Adam Levine, um, is money money, or is it is it actually helpful to have some some uh, star power on your uh, on your investor roster? No, no, we love working with those guys. Um, you know, uh, they quickly saw the same opportunity that the professional investors saw, which is that there was a, a category in shift, and that Casper was leading the way of a, a better, smarter way to buy mattresses and other sleep products like sheets and pillows that we designed and developed. And so, uh, it's exciting to work with different folks in different fields and everyone has a kind of different perspective about how we could tell our story in a meaningful way and uh, whether you're a celebrity or not uh, we try to work with people that not only are aligned in our vision and what we want to build but uh, can help shape what Casper becomes and so really lucky to have the the roster of investors that we have. I'm not asking you to name any names but I mean are, is this 
you know, is it this? Is it the same pitch? I mean, you're in front of people, and and you're you know, you find yourself in front of a, a hypothetical Toby Maguire. You know, <laughs> the same deck and the same. You know, always sitting there asking the same types of questions as as, as anyone else, or is it? Is, no, is it, there a different process? Same same pitch, same process. Uh, they were co-investing alongside institutional investors at every step of the way, and so. Um, you know, a, a, everything was the same, and and all the guys that we have uh, on our cap table take investing very seriously, and and take what we're doing very seriously, and have been tremendously helpful in in building the business. And uh, again, we we count ourselves very lucky to have the investors that we have. You had seventy five employees on board when you closed your Series B. Um, things are 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 changing so quickly, and and obviously in such a positive way. How do you balance getting the right people on board with getting people on board? I have to imagine you broke a few eggs to make the omelet, so to speak. Yeah, and today we're about double that, so closing in on on 150. Um, But it it is absolutely about getting the right people on board, and and we've been really lucky uh, on that front. And uh, we've we've attracted people that have fully bought into what Casper can become and what our vision for the company is. And... Uh, you know, we're, we're really lucky to be based in New York City where there's just such great talent. And, and Casper, you know, a- every single person on board is incredibly smart and talented. And, and uh, you know, I, I feel lucky every day that we have the team that we have because uh, as cliched as it is, it's, it's most certainly true that at the end of the day, your success will be defined by the people that you have on board. And uh, we're lucky that, that we have attracted great talent since the beginning and, and continue to do so today. And, and that's why I have complete confidence in our uh, path forward again like dude that that rapid change in you know 75 people 150 people as have you have you set out to create a certain kind we all think of a startup culture but you know it's sort of a, maybe that's a little cliche too but have you set out to create a culture or has the culture just kind of become because it's a collection of such diverse people who've joined so quickly is, is it something you can you can actually manage to create a culture Absolutely. I think you have to, especially at our scale now, uh, proactively manage creating the culture. And um, it, it, we, we knew we had to get in front of that when we saw that the things that we had taken for granted, which is knowing what you know, the founders wanted of the company culture. And, and you know, in the beginning, we're all sitting around the table. Everyone hears what everyone else is saying. So it's very easy to communicate what our culture is and what the expectations are. Uh, and as you get bigger and bigger, you have to do things like memorializing the culture so people can read about it, understand it, and, and fully digest it, uh, especially as we have disparate offices now throughout the country, and uh, it, it becomes very important to manage and, and be very proactive with. How, how would you describe the culture? And can you give us a few examples of how the culture is, is manifest? Sure. I, I mean, I'm, I think the culture is awesome. We, we have a group of, of really smart people that are really empathetic and, and care a great deal. We, we try to promote transparency and honesty and um, and t- not taking anything for granted. And uh, I think you see that manifest itself through uh, how we handle every single customer interaction, whether it's, you know, a phone call, live chat, tweet. And, and you know, from day one, we've uh, created a culture where every customer interaction needs to be exceptional. And uh, even as we're growing quickly, both internally and externally, we, we need to uh, make sure that, that those are always placed at the highest priority. So we're a very customer-centric company. And 
uh, take that philosophy with everything that we do. And you still have all the uh, all the fresh fruit and trampolines and uh, ping pong tables like everyone else? Or, no. Uh, no? <laughs> <laughs> uh, New York real estate's expensive, so no room for ping pong tables and trampolines these days. Uh, good. Okay. I'm, that's, that's more my, up, up my alley. Uh, okay. So um, you told the journal that global growth is a priority. You already said you know, you're shipping to Canada, which I f- actually find interesting. I imagine there's some different... Legislations around, you know, regulations around, I don't know, you know, anti-flammability standards and stuff like that. You know, do you, do you have to change your product at all for different countries? And is is there both from like a regulatory perspective for a Canada? I noticed the journal said um, that you were targeting Europe now. Um, you know, are there either different regulations there or just different customs? You know, is there maybe our bed six inches longer or shorter somewhere? Uh, both, uh, all of the above, I should say. There's there's different regulatory considerations. There's different sizing considerations. There's different field considerations. There's different adoption rates of different materials that we use. Um, so it's it's certainly not uh, it's certainly not just replicating exactly what we did in the U.S. and and doing it in other markets. It's figuring out how we tell our story in the right way and and how we connect with consumers in a, in a kind of way that feels genuine and authentic and, and local. And so uh, we, we have to put a lot of effort into launching other markets, and it's not something that we, we take lightly. And uh, we're, But with all that said, uh, the one uniform truth in, in kind of every market is that buying a mattress today has been a terrible process. And so right. the uh, the same kind of disruption that we've tried to uh, be a catalyst for in the U.S. We we think we will be in other markets as well. Do you have, do you have any insight from people's purchasing behavior? Like, oh, you'd be surprised to know that uh, Italians like a softer bed, or uh, you know, I don't know, Alaskans like a <laughs> uh, <laughs> anything like that. Nothing that comes. So, I mean, yeah. I would still say we're still very much in the learning phase. Yeah. So uh, it's trying to figure out some of those things, and and nothing specific comes to mind with the mattress yet. We're we're in kind of a pretty singular moment right now, and and maybe maybe the end of that singular moment where you know the opportunity to fundraise has been phenomenal. Um, you know, is do you feel like there's any there have been any changes for the way you run your business? Is there any particularly in the last couple of months as things gotten really volatile? Um, you know, in the in the overall market. I mean, is there is there any have your investors changed their tune at all? They're like, we want to see this thing profitable now. Maybe, maybe it is profitable now. I, I don't know. So uh, I, I don't we haven't really changed the way we operate and um, you know we're obviously all cognizant of some of the things changing in the the macro environment uh, when it comes to fundraising or, or late stage companies um, but for us we've always been very purposeful that we wanted to build this business for the long term we want to make the right investments that set us up to be successful in the long term and because we had a very um, I think uh, a lot of foresight into what we want the business to become, then it, it meant that we didn't have to change our course in the short term. And that's been our approach with fundraising in the past. That's you know, why we raised when we raised. And, and we continue to have a very long-term optimistic view on the business. And we'll continue to make investments uh, that set us up to become category leaders. You know, again, back to that kind of the board dynamic. We've had different people on the show who've had different, very different board experiences, and some have gotten the way and some haven't. But I imagine it's much easier to go where you want to go when your company's a juggernaut and really taking off. I mean, I, I'm on a, I'm on a subway once a week, and and this, you know, the subway car is is plastered with Casper ads everywhere, and you know we've done a great job of developing loyalty and have brand awareness everywhere. Um, probably on, on a subway more often than that when I see when I see a Casper ad uh, or a Casper. 
car, so to speak, uh, um, or maybe a whole train. I don't know. Do you guys take the whole train, or is it just cars that I'm on? Uh, it's generally cars. Okay, yeah. individual cars. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, are your is your board? I'm assuming they're satisfied. Are they? Are you sort of really able to operate as you'd like, or are there? Is it still? You know, are there rigid expectations that they have, and they're they're involved? Uh, I, I I would say we're really lucky to have the board that we have uh, because they are very supportive of the business that the founders want to build, and and um, I, I would say one of the things that we looked for in working with some of the investors that we work with were how they supported entrepreneurs in good times and in bad, uh, and and you know I know from personal experience that businesses all have their their ups and downs, and so uh, we wanted to work with just good folks that are around the table to help build a, a great business. And so we're, we're lucky to have the board that we have. They're very supportive of the business that we're building. And uh, they've just been great and, and just help us be smarter and, and help us uh, see around corners and understand how we can posi- position ourselves to be successful in, in changing the industry. And you, and you mentioned ups and downs. Uh, the Casper story seems to be just a lot of up, but there have to have been a few mistakes you've made on the way. Can you can you talk about any mistakes that that, that uh, or any setbacks that you've had along the way to, to getting to where you are today? Yeah, I mean the, the Casper journey has been incredible. But uh, since day one, we we certainly had our share of miscalculations, and and those caused pain points. And I think the most acute pain points are when we make a promise to customers that we aren't able to live up to, and uh, you know, in the early days, a lot of times it was underestimating what the demand for the, the business would be. And so we had, fortunately, in the early days, we had very patient customers that were very kind and, and sympathetic. And so we, we it was hugely painful to have a customer that had to wait two, three, even four weeks at its peak for a product that we promised them much sooner than that. And uh, I think... It, the beautiful part about having a direct-to-consumer business like we have, though, is that we do get to talk directly to our customers. We understand uh, the pain points that they're going through, and we understand the, the, the joy that they receive when they get the product. And so um, we we hear it firsthand. We live it day in and day out. And uh, so we, we definitely made some mistakes on how we planned for our, our product rolled rollouts and, and getting behind on shipping and shipping errors and uh, so we've worked you know, tirelessly since day one to fix these processes and to just deliver a better, more consistent customer experience. And so uh, it's, we continue to learn lessons every day and, and just improve the process. But it's, uh, it's, it's extremely painful when we mis- make those mistakes. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in a business where matching supply and demand is, is, is very, very tough. And I always say, like, I would rather not have the client than the, the, uh, rather not have the demand <laughs> than turn someone away. If, if, if given those two things, it's so painful to know that you've got yes. someone who wants your service. Yeah, especially, I mean, it, you know, buying something like this is so impactful to your life, right? If you need a new mattress, it's, uh, it makes a huge difference. And so uh, we, we continue to, to make sure that everyone in the company, f- you know, understands uh, exactly how important the, the purchase process is and, and what we all try to think about how we can make it better. So, I mean, how, how, how fast, like if I ordered a mattress right now, how quickly would it be at my door now? So today in New York City, you can get it within an hour of your choosing. Whoa. So we could probably have it to you later today. And what <laughs> if I live in Hawaii, let's say? Uh, Hawaii would be tough. Um, or so, California. Yeah, right? California. So uh, within a few days. Within a, within um, a few days. Certain markets, San Francisco and L.A., you can actually schedule delivery as well. So potentially tomorrow. Um, but if it goes through just traditional UPS shipping, usually within two to three days of ordering. So you've managed to, to, to blow through that bottleneck, and now you've got the ability to, to produce at the level that you want, basically. 
We, we do. And, um, you know, anyone that's dealing with physical materials knows there's always hiccups in the supply chain, but we try to better manage that. Um, so we're in a good position now. We launched uh, pillows and sheets that we designed and developed in-house last, uh, excuse me, last November. And those products, again, have been selling great and, and are really well received. And people are talking about them on social media and just how great they are. But again, that, that kind of accelerated sales beyond what we expected. And so we're continuing to work to make sure we have those in stock and, and shipping quickly. So, so you're going through that all over again with a different category? Yes. We uh, we learned some lessons along the way. But uh, <laughs> just like in life, you, you uh, are always learning and, and always making new mistakes. So, uh, you know, we unfortunately <laughs> make plenty, but we, we try to learn quickly and adapt what we're doing to uh, solve the problems. What makes a better sheet? So uh, a big factor on sleep overall is temperature. And so sheets control how much uh, air is circulated within your mattress uh, and within the sleep environment. Uh, and so having a great pillow that regulates temperature and airflow and having great sheets and having a great mattress that all help create the ideal sleep surface, uh, all help improve sleep. And so that, that was one of the big things that we solved for. We have a perfectly balanced weave and we use the longest staple cotton in the world, which actually comes from Southern California. And so uh, when you combine all of that, it, it really does create uh, an incredible sleep uh, surface and an incredible night's rest. See, now I'm imagining if I were to tour your, your, your Soho facility, that we'd, we'd open one door randomly, like out of a movie, and we'd just find a whole bunch of people in there <laughs> testing, sleeping. You know, they'd have their thumbs in their mouths, their sleeping caps on, and they'd you know, have a stuffed animal, and they'd be testing your new sheets. Uh, <laughs> how do you test? I mean, how do you know? Like, I, do, I mean, is it just like, hey, everyone take home these sheets. You know, we made them. Give it a shot. Give us your feedback. There's a lot of that, but there's a, a lot of... Uh, actually scientific data points that you can uh, test against. And so airflow is, is a one that you can send off to a lab and get results on. Um, but there, there's a number of different uh, quantitative tests that we run. And then, of course, we do uh, a ton of user testing. And so there were you know, hundreds of different designs for both the pillows and sheets and mattress that um, you know, we, we ultimately narrowed down and, and found the most ideal construction possible. You know, do you have a do you have a, a showroom strategy? Are there showrooms outside of New York and in, in other places that people can come to, or is it is ever is everything else online? So right now, our only showroom is in New York. Um, we had one in LA, uh, which we're we're moving, but they were kind of off the beaten path. So you would you would still find out about us online, uh, and that's been great. I mean, tons of people come by and they want to try it, and really that started with the first days of Casper. So. Since the day we launched the business on April 22nd of 2014, we had people knocking on our front door saying, you know, can I come lay on the bed? And so we converted the back part of our office into a bedroom. And, uh, you know, ever since then, it's just been a, a part of our offering. So you, you already talked about this, this vertical in integration, sheets and pillows, um, mattresses. Um, you told Ali Watch that you're exploring other product categories. I don't, again, I don't want to put you on the spot, but my imagination is somewhat limited. Where, where else can you take sleep? So if you imagine uh, there's tons of products that influence sleep, um, you know, some in a, a, a very material way like sheets and pillows, but there's tons of products out there that, that go into your bedroom or that, um, that you need to get a great night of sleep. And so uh, many of those products are ones that we're thinking about or working on and uh, we'll have some exciting announcements later this year. So being sort of like a halo brand for all, for, for just a good night's sleep is where K Casper is going? Exactly. We we think we can uh, become the go-to brand that uh, you think about as a consumer when you want to get a better night of sleep, regardless of what that product is. It's exciting stuff. we got a, vi a vision in the past uh, where you started and comes full circle to, to the future of, uh, of sleeping and uh, <laughs> you know the company. Uh, thanks so much for sharing the story with us. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. This has been great. I really appreciate it. 
We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 